0: Welcome to Dr. M's Women and Children First Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. M, and today we're going to be doing something a little different. We're going to try a medical student journal club. For those who don't know what that is, it's essentially a discussion between multiple people breaking down different articles that are published in the scientific literature, trying to come up with a better understanding of what the literature is stating and how we can utilize that for our day-to-day living. Today we're going to be joined by Andrew Brackens and Zachary Strong. Andrew is a third-year medical student at Campbell University School of Medicine. He completed his undergraduate degree from Harding University in Arkansas. Andrew also happens to be my content production intern for this podcast and has been instrumental in helping with producing graphics and also social media presence and other things to help get the word out there. Zach Strong is a family nurse practitioner. He obtained his bachelor in science from Calvin College in Grand Rapids, Michigan, as well as a minor in nutrition at Calvin College. He is master's in science of nursing family practitioner program was at Western Carolina University in Asheville, North Carolina. Zach is an avid thinker, a process guy, and also a huge CrossFitter. He, like Andrew, you know, have this insatiable desire to learn, to be proactive, and to find new ways of educating themselves. So this was their idea, and I thought it was a good one. So we're going to tackle a few articles today, and we may do this in the future depending on how it plays out, but the goal of this podcast is to be primarily a... a, educational journey through articles that have been published that have given us data that we can use. It is in the format of what's called a um, medical student journal club. So I hope you enjoy our first attempt at enjoying a conversation between three people around the literature. All right, gentlemen, welcome to the inaugural Dr. M's Women and Children First podcast with a journal club number one. And tonight we have the special guest appearances of Zachary Strong, family nurse practitioner working at Salisbury Pediatric Associates, and Andrew Brackens, medical student year three at Camby Nurs- University School of Medicine. Welcome, gentlemen. Thanks. Thank you for having us. I'm pretty excited. This is a, uh, an idea that came to fruition a few months ago, and uh, we've come up with some ideas of what to talk about. And we're going to sort of run through it for students who are interested in learning more about some topics of interest. And tonight, we're going to go through uh, dairy and also multi-inflammatory syndrome, specifically based off of, of two big studies. And one of them was called Milk and Health with Dr. Walter Willett and David Ludwig published in the New England Journal of Medicine. And that was in uh, 2020. And then we also have the article by Dr. Alessio Fasano that was published in the Journal of Clinical Investigation and the lead author was Lael Yonker and that was published in 2021 in May. So let's kick it off starting there, Andrew your, your, your idea was to talk about milk. So tell me why.
1: Yeah. So my wife and I are in the midst of raising who is a, a little 14 month old now, who's just so much fun. Um, but in all of this, I was trying to figure out like being in med school and raising a kid, what basically to recommend to myself and to my wife as parents. Um, you know, we learn a ton about it in school as you're going through your pediatric rotation, which is where I met, um, Dr. M and Zach. And so I was hit with this actual personal need to figure out why in the world I am being recommended to, to start giving Colton milk after a whole year of, of relying on breast milk and then introducing different foods and stuff. I started reading things on, you know, once, once your child starts to transition off of breast milk, you need to supplement with a pretty large quantity of, of regular cow's milk. And so I started digging into it and I was trying to figure out exactly what the reasoning was behind it. And to be honest, I wasn't finding a ton outside of some like vitamin D supplementation. So I kind of want to present this to you guys as uh, guys who are in the field, have been in the field longer than I have, um, kind of like what your take is on why dairy like what what is the the magic bullet that that dairy has and and where is that coming from basically
0: yeah so i guess the the evolutionary perspective is probably where we should start so mammals humans being a mammal clearly have always used milk as a main source of nourishment in the first six months to a year of life back for thousands and thousands and thousands of years so it wasn't a, it wasn't much of a leap of faith to say hey milk is good for us because humans produce milk right mm-hmm. The timing is an interesting question. And I think that is something that came out of thin air, right? One year of age, breast milk stops, cow milk starts. There's zero evidence that I've ever seen for that. And Dr. Kuntz and I did a deep dive into this a few years ago, probably about six years ago and pulled every paper we could find. And there was zero evidence that we could find evolutionarily where this makes any sense outside of just a substitute post breast milk or for those mothers who couldn't complete breast milk stages up to six, 12 months of age. Outside of that, your point, your question is, is well taken because why is this occurring? And we don't know, right? The AAP recommends it, the American Academy of Pediatrics and many other societies do recommend it, but there, there is no evidence that I can find to support that question um, answer. Right? So mm-hmm. If we go back historically, where did dairy become such a big part of of human society? It was somewhere around the time of of, of farming, right? So we started mass produce farming animals, you know. So we started taking cows, putting them on a farm, goats, sheep, whatever, and keeping them locally. Their milk became a good source of nourishment during periods of time where food was scarce. And I think this is the key to any time we talk about different source of nourishment, when food scarcity occurs, anything you can find is of value. So, you know, there are tribes in Africa who use blood, they'll blood an animal, but not kill it. So because the blood has a lot of nourishment, things that we would never conceive of today. So the probability is that the vast majority of this came up because food scarcity drove people to choose different sources of nourishment that we otherwise might not have. I think the big thing of the United States is fascinating because milk wasn't really a huge part of our society until the 1940s. So around the end of World War or the beginning of um, World War II for us, you know, we, we started adding milk to the school program and free and reduced lunch, what we call it now. There was a national program back then and dairy became part of that. And I think back then there was a lot of poverty. There was a lot of malnourishment. So again, a good source of calories, saturated fat, protein, and carbohydrate are all in decent amounts in cow's milk. So I think that to me would be the short answers to the why. And probably back then there weren't really good studies to say whether it was good or not good. It just made sense from a caloric perspective. Yeah. You got any ideas on that one, Zach?
2: Yeah. I think you kind of hit on it quite a bit. I think from my understanding, you know, why we encourage cow's milk or uh, dairy in general is for the vitamin D supplementation and the calcium. Um, to my knowledge, that's really the, uh, one of the main factors that we would encourage it to kids after they are following any, um, formula or breast milk after one year of age.
1: Right. And is that, and then just, you know, kind of helping me understand this as, as being new to the field. So it's like, it is a, it's chock full of a ton of like, uh, filling ingredients. You mentioned, uh, Dr. M earlier, you mentioned it's got saturated fats, it's got protein. Um, it's got a decent amount of carbohydrates, like all of these things that, that like, if you just say them together, sound like a pretty whole pun intended, a whole source of nutrition there. Um, but we kind of now live in a society where that's not an issue. Is that kind of where I'm getting at?
0: Yeah, I think you're exactly right. And I think Zach's point is what the government says, right? The government's been telling us for quite a while now that calcium and vitamin D, now granted, no, no milk generally has adequate amounts of vitamin D. That's actually a supplementation that's added back to it to make it better for us. The calcium clearly is there, but, you know, and, and we probably need to start diving into the paper now, um, but, you know, the, the, the calcium requirements that that we're being told are necessary clearly may or may not be necessary. So Zach, why don't you take that? So milk and health, Walter Willett uh, you know, he's a, uh, one of the top nutrition researchers in the world and has been for a long time. He's part of the nurses health study which is one of the biggest studies. And then David Ludwig, his compatriot here is another hugely, hugely powerful nutrition researcher. So what did we learn in this, in this study? You guys take it in piecemeal, on it. And, and let's come out. Let Zach, you start since you asked the question what's going on with the calcium vitamin D story?
2: Sure. Um, so we kind of, you know, I, I think looking at this study, we looked at, um, why dairy, what is the benefit of dairy and, um, what is the recommendation, um, from that standpoint. And we know from, uh, calcium standpoint that, um, adequate, uh, supplementation and sources of calcium can prevent, uh, major bone fractures. And that has always been, you know, from my understanding from day one, from schooling, uh, the main driving factor of good sources of calcium. Um, so it's quite interesting t- when you take a look at this paper to actually see um, is that true? Is that accurate or not? Um, and how much calcium do we need? Um, we have the, I believe, the US requirement of right around, I believe it's 1100 milligrams per day. Um, and we looked at other countries that are um, almost half of that between 450 and 550 per day in the United Kingdom. Um, so is it necessary to get that much? Is it twice as much as we need? Um, are we kind of exaggerating this and blowing it out of proportion. Um, so it was, um, insightful to kind of see, you know, why, where do we come up with these numbers and is there any justification behind these numbers? Um, and are they necessary?
1: Yeah. So there's a fa- go ahead. No, I was just gonna, I was going to comment on that. Like, um, that Dr. Willett kind of dives into it in there and he says the basis for those recommendations were based off of, um, the balance of calcium intake and excretion in only 155 adults that they included in this study, which was very interesting. They estimated that the intake needed to maintain balance. So basically, are you taking in enough to keep up with what you're putting back out in these 155 adults? The balance was quote, 741 milligrams per day. Um, But he, he points out the fact that besides the incredibly small, Population size there, um, you have a very short duration of this actual study. It was only two to three weeks. And then these people habitually intake um, a pretty large amount of calcium at baseline. And then he compares that with if you did the same study in a group of Peruvian men, um, where it's a, a culture that takes in much less dairy, they only needed 200 milligrams to keep up that balance. Um, And then they go into that. Basically, it looks like our body can adjust how much calcium we absorb based on the like availability. So if you take in a little, your body's upregulates how much it actually absorbs. So it, it doesn't seem like a very, I don't know, it doesn't sound like a very kind of like solid foundation for that but yeah zach i remember growing up and seeing the got milk commercials the one that was like burned in my head is the one of this family with young kids sitting inside eating breakfast they look out the window at their elderly neighbor who's doing yard work neighbor turns and waves and goes to pick up his wheelbarrow and his arms fall off (laughs) and if you can youtube it it's great because i mean and the kids just the look of shock they're just like and then it flashes to hey drink milk so that doesn't happen
0: yeah. So, so fascinating enough, you know, when you start thinking about it from a holistic perspective, we use calcium in our bodies to right any wrong when it comes to stability. So, you think about coronary artery calcium score, right? That's a marker of heart disease. Why? Because the calcium is actually going and infiltrating the blood vessels in the heart in order to protect inflammatory responses that are there. So, we see calcium actually as a bridge to healing. But if you're getting too much calcium on board, is that potentially causing too much calcification in places where there's inflammation? This is going to be an interesting question as we move forward. I mean, clearly right now there are supplements with vitamin D where you add K, but it's K2, which is menaquinone, And the reason being is because K2 actually allows the, the calcium to make a better decision in its tree of where it goes. And it heads more towards the bone, which probably brings us back to the whole point of when we think of anything supplemental, we think of synergy, right? So when you eat food, you eat, you know, uh, lemon with some fish, with some tomato and some salad, they're all going into the soup together in the stomach. And then so you're getting a bolus of different nutrients, which work together to answer questions. So to take out one single micro nutrient, like, calcium and say, okay, that's what helps bones. It it makes little logical sense, right? So Zach, you're a CrossFitter, you're all into working out, you know, the clearest answer as to why bones form, right, is what Zach does, right? It's exercise, right? Axial loading drives bone formation, especially when we're young. So for me, the number one risk factor, I think, for calcium deposition problems is sedentary behavior. Think about like in the hospital, what do we do when people are immobilized for a long time? right? We have to deal with that calcium leach, right? Calcium starts falling out of their bones, right? So for me, the the direction of where the calcium goes is driven by our lifestyle choices, right? I think that's the question that we're not answering correctly. We're answering this thing as a single micronutrient need and also a a question of calories. As you stated earlier, uh, Andrew, calories aren't an issue anymore. If anything, we have too many calories. If calcium is the need, where is the huge program stating we need K2, we need phosphorus, we need potassium, we need magnesium, we need all the other things that are part of bone, bone accretion. But most importantly, workouts.
1: You yeah. Know? I, I think, think I, that's the big thing. And I think I, I may have kind of like sidetracked that, Zach. What was the ultimate um, statement on whether or not this is actually helping reduce fraction, or fractures? Yes. So the
2: end of the article um, states basically saying that existing data does not support high intakes of milk um, during adolescence for prevention of fractures later in life and suggests um, that higher intakes may contribute to actual higher incidence of fractures in countries uh, with the highest milk consumption, which would the United States um, would probably fall under. So actually the um, opposite being true that it can actually potentially increase your risk for fractures.
1: Hmm. Yeah.
2: That's
0: Fascinating
1: food for thought for sure.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. What they tell us is why we need to do it is being shown in studies probably to do the exact opposite.
1: So some but of the other things that they kind of addressed in this, and I think they do a great job of laying out, like here are all of the reasons why we have been told, or like you would think that dairy is good or or bad or whatever. They talk about body weight and obesity and that this goes back to, um, skim milk versus whole milk kind of for me where I remember looking forward to going to my grandparents' house when I was growing up because they had whole milk and it tasted so much better than the skim milk my mom would give me and stuff. So have you guys ever dealt with like parents asking about what's better skim or whole? And then how has this article like either shifted or reaffirmed at what you've been able to tell them?
2: So I don't know if I've been directly asked, uh, um, you know, should my child be on skim milk or or whole milk? Um, Sometimes if they're asking what type of milk um, to go on, we'll kind of get in that conversation directly. Um, But I think Dr. Magritte, you can probably get into this a little bit more just in terms of uh, are there actual benefits to consuming anything than whole milk or unpasteurized milk? What is the difference when you're talking about skim milk, 2% milk um, and whole milk? what are these benefits, what is being advertised and what's kind of the reality of it? Um, because I um, know based on um, reading your wife's book that she kind of dives into that quite a bit as well. Um, so do you kind of want to um, touch on that a little bit?
0: Yeah. So so when you start talking about milk itself, we have to really go back a couple of layers, right? So historical milk is essentially a cow that walks through the grass, eats the grass, has four stomachs to chew up all the different grass types and churn it up and then produce mammalian milk. They don't take hormones. They walk everywhere. They don't stand in their poop all day long. All of the, what they call CAFU, you know, which is these, these, corporation-based feedlots where these animals sit in their own stool. They are given hormones that make them pregnant. So they are more likely to lactate all year long. Their udders get longer, their udders touch the ground, so They need antibiotics to prevent mastitis and infection, which gets into the milk, although they stay by the time it's sold to you, the antibiotics are out. But just think about what that does to the animal, the stress level, the cortisol response, The, the entire experience of that animal is not healthy. I mean, you see the pasture-raised animal on the cover, but that is the farthest thing from what these milk products actually are. Our conventional milk is essentially a mechanized industry that is not humane to the animals, just flat out, right? So then the big question comes, does that actually change the type of product? And there are things that are very true. Cows that graze on grass produce more omega-3 fatty acids. Those omega-3 fatty acids are particularly important because they are anti-inflammatory by nature. You remember the names EPA and DHA, eicosapentaenoic acid and xenoic acid are the two big ones. We add them back to formula now for kids, why? Because it's very clear how important these things are. You don't get that from a feedlot animal. They are fed grains, corn primarily, that makes them omega six, which turns on the arachidonic acid cascade, which is all pro-inflammatory. So the mechanized animal-based dairy industry to me, mechanistically makes zero sense from a health perspective, right? They'll have studies that say it's just as safe because they're gonna make the studies say that. I mean, this is the problem with nutritional research. You can target anything you want to say whatever you want. You can shorten the study, you can do this, do that but when you really look at the science and you get into the mechanisms, and this is the key in my last 20 years of study, is that once you start to understand the mechanisms, it can't make sense for an omega-6 fat to be high volume in an animal to be good for us. And and so clearly I'm of the ilk that I don't need studies to prove what God has given us or nature has given us. So that's, that's the first part, so mechanized versus real. Then the question of pasteurization versus not pasteurized, right? So pasteurization was a brilliant idea by Louis Pasteur, to get rid of microbes that could potentially kill us. The downside to pasteurizing is you get rid of a lot of the enzymes that are really important to break things down. You alter protein structure, things change a little bit. Now, the milk is still healthy. And the problem of unpasteurized milk is that it could be dangerous. So we are stuck in this pattern, right? But for me, if we could find a way to make unpasteurized milk safe, that would be the ideal way to do it. Litiginous society would have, probably not gonna happen. So then if we take those two caveats and say, okay, what type of milk should we do if we get the best kind of milk? So let's say we're not doing mechanized, we're doing family farm, animals out there beautifully grazing, it's a happy cow, it's milk, and we get their fresh milk. So you got skim, 2%, full milk, fat. Okay. Skim, essentially, is they're saying, let's take the fat out, right? 2% says they're going to keep a certain percentage of the fat and 2% doesn't mean only has 2% milk fat it's it's a different way of saying it it's got more than that in it a significant amount more and then full fat is full fat right so my wife who you guys know nutritionist has been studying this stuff for a long time clearly says that you know the fat is good for us right and so Ansel Keys way back in the seventies started to tell us fat's dangerous. It causes heart attacks. It causes X, Y, and Z. So that's what ushered in this era of getting rid of fat. The problem was, is when you get rid of fat, things don't taste as good. So you end up adding back to it sugar in order to improve the taste or salt, both of which we now know are very clearly driving metabolic syndrome, diabetes, heart disease, high blood pressure. So to me, when you say take fat out, I'm immediately saying it doesn't make sense. And again, if God wanted skim milk or nature wanted skim milk, we'd have skim milk cows. We don't. So I am pretty much always of the ilk that if we go with what you know history has dictated, we'll be more likely to make the right decision than to try and find our way away from it through whatever mechanized or belief system we have, food technology. So I think the simple answer is if you're gonna drink milk, I would drink organic grass-fed, right? Whole milk.
2: So what I found interesting coming to private practice is the issues that I've seen in um, the infant population um, with difficulty or um, struggling to break down certain types of proteins found in formula or found in breastfeeding moms that are consuming dairy, Um Have you seen that that has been more common recently than when you first started out practicing, you know, over 20 years ago, has that been something that has been increasing, you know, over the past five or 10 years?
0: Well, it's a loaded question. First of all, when I started practicing medicine, I was too stupid to understand what dairy intolerance was. So I have to caveat that reality that even coming out of good institutions where I was supposed to be pretty smart, we didn't understand anything. right? First of all, you know, we get 16 hours of nutrition training throughout medical school, which left me you know, somewhat, uh, incapable of making good decisions around food until I met my wife. And then I learned through a fire hose on what I'm supposed to know, but I got to private practice in 99. And we would tell moms who had colicky babies that their kid had a gut brain interface problem. There was something wrong with the way their brain understood the reactions going on in the intestines, whether it was bloating or whatever, that that was causing colic. And then a few years later, it dawned on us that what was really going on was there was something going wrong with a child's response to dairy. And when that got understood, we started to see a unbelievable volume of kids that were milk protein intolerant. We say milk protein intolerance, we mean they react in a non-allergic way. So not IgE mediated, which is a type where gives you anaphylactic response, vomiting, rashes, um, difficulty breathing, throat closure. It was a non-IgE mediated or IgG mediated slow response to the dairy protein causing milk intolerance in the gut. And that as a child showed up as eczema, congestion, um, uh, colitis, which we saw as green stools that had blood in them. And these kids were exceedingly fussy. So they called it colic, but what it really was, was a a reaction immunologically to the casein protein, which we call casein curds, which is the part of the, the dairy that turns into that hard little cheese ball, as opposed to the whey, which is the milky white stuff. And these kids immunologically reacted to this stuff. And so by removal of dairy out of their diet, switch them to soy or switch them to a hydrolyzed protein where the proteins are broken down. These kids no longer reacted. And that was the most amazing thing for me. Now it's frustrating to know that for years I've been giving bad advice to parents, but such as medicine, but then how beautiful was it to be able to say to parents, Hey, we switched this milk your kids normal. Right. And that was quite incredible. And, and so fast forward to 2022. And the difference was, I'd say it was probably one in every hundred babies back then in 99. Now it feels like it's one in four. Um, And I don't have, solid data for this. This is just how it feels like. It feels like every fourth kid I see in some way, shape or form cannot tolerate cow's milk either in the formula or in mom's breast milk. And so that tells me something's happened immunologically in the human and, or something's differentially going on with the cow's milk and how it's being presented to the human. So for me, I talking
2: about. So when you're talking about this um, milk protein intolerance or casein um, intolerance, are you talking about um, increasing their ability um, to actually have an allergy towards dairy? Are you talking about lactose intolerance or can you um, distinguish the difference between those three?
0: Yeah, so, so good question. So lactose intolerance is very rare in kids because lactose intolerance is a deficiency of the ability to make lactase enzyme, which is an enzyme that made at the tip of the intestinal cells. It's made at it the, the villi. And so you make this little enzyme called lactase. The sugar, which is what lactose is, is the milk sugar, is in your intestines. The lactase breaks it down into its, into its um, building blocks. Milk protein intolerance is actually where you react to the protein, which is the casein. And that casein protein is what I was talking about, which is that curd. And so that is a a slower reaction that's occurring via the immune system, by the adaptive immune system. And it it to us appears to be IgG or IgA mediated, which is one of the other antibody types that's not rapid. It doesn't happen in minutes. It happens in hours to days. And so that that's milk protein intolerance where milk allergy or cow milk allergy, CMA is the acute onset. You drink milk, you vomit, you have uh, bloody diarrhea, you have uh, anaphylactic symptoms of, of hives, rashes, uh, throat closure, all the things that we think of with peanut allergy and all the others. So those three distinct entities are based on how the immune system or how the body is reacting to either the, the sugar because of a lack of an enzyme or the protein, depending on what the immunologic variant is. And so we are seeing all three of those, but the only one that's really common right now is cow milk intolerance, which is the slow reacting antibody. Milk allergy is not nearly as common. We do see it, but not really that common. And lactase enzyme deficiency or lactose intolerance is very rare in in young kids. That starts to show up in the teenage years. And it's more predilected towards African-Americans and Asian-Americans than it is toward Caucasians. And this is actually ethnically plays out the whole way through our whole existence. So even in 60, 70, 80 year olds, that, that predilection tends to follow that demographic line.
1: That's so interesting. So, yeah. So yeah. with, um, with the stuff that we're seeing in kids and just to be, make sure that I understand this correctly and make sure that the listeners understand. So like lactose intolerance is not a allergy. It is you are deficient in something that your body needs to digest whatever the, the lactose, that milk sugar.
0: Correct. And I okay. would say it's not immunologic, right? Right. And that's probably the way to differentiate the two. The cow milk intolerance and cow milk algae are immunologic reactions that are abnormal to a stuff, Whereas lactose intolerance is an enzyme deficiency where you cannot metabolize
1: a sugar. Gotcha. Gotcha. That makes sense. So let's pivot here guys.
0: So let's go back to the study. I think we've nailed down some of the basics of, of milk, how it's produced and how we react to it. Let's go back to why it doesn't make a whole lot of sense anymore for milk to be a staple in the human diet based on the research. Again, sort of putting holes in the argument that the federal government and the dairy council say milk is good for you. So Zach, what did you take away from Willett's article on the risk of cancer?
2: Yeah. I found it fascinating to find out that um, consumption of dairy products is actually strongly correlated with rates of breast cancer and prostate cancer. Um, Again, with that greatest risk being your uh, increase in um, getting prostate cancer.
0: Yeah. Which was fascinating.
1: Yeah. It was interesting too, that you saw, they mentioned that you have like a decreased correlation with colon cancer, but I think going back to um, what we were talking about earlier on how Milk is produced these days. So um Dr. M, you mentioned the fact that they want these cows pregnant or at the very least, uh chemically pregnant, if that makes sense. So yep. there's the they mentioned in the article that a lot of times they will they will pump the cows uh with like progestins and yep. all of these hormones that are that are present when cows and humans for that matter are pregnant. And so you have all of these sex hormones, you know, that are, they're that coming through at high levels and it correlates and makes sense that the highest prevalence of cancer is a prostate or a breast cancer, you know, yeah. sex hormone stimulated organs that we're dealing with here.
0: Yeah, and I, I don't know if that's ever been teased out mechanistically, but again, I think that is something that makes plausible sense. You know, anytime you start having excess hormones flooding the body, I can't see anything good happening from that. I mean, if we think about extra thyroid in there, you get hyperthyroidism. You know, if you get extra cortisol, you're hypercortisol. And none of those end up well. So having more progesterone and estrogen in the body, I can't see any way that that is good for us, let alone if it's a animal based estrogen or progesterone or a human based estrogen. It's, it's, don't like it. I think it it makes little sense. And again, for the animal, it makes no sense, right? To keep the animal pregnant all year long, or even, you know, 10, 10 to 11 months out of every single year is has to be unhealthy. I mean, there's just no way that is healthy or safe. And so just from a straightforward perspective of, does it make sense for humans to consume something that hurts the animal? I mean, I'm not a, you know, an animal rights activist, but this to me, is pretty straightforward. It doesn't make any sense to do this to an animal. and and furthermore, I don't want to drink a milk that they do this to the animal. Maybe if people took that tact, maybe they stopped doing this to the animals and we can get healthier milk. I'd be all for that because again, give me a good reason why this happens. I mean, to produce more milk, that's not a good reason, right? So, yeah, I, I find it fascinating. So any other thoughts on this article before we switch gears and go on? you know the only thing the only other thing I want to say, you know, that I thought that I thought was fascinating is that when we look at this stuff again, it's clear that Willett and Ludwig come away with milk is not what we're told it is, right? It is not the healthiest thing on the earth for us. It's, it may not be a net negative, but it's definitely not a net positive. And in some cases it is a net negative. But for me, I come back to one simple thought, right? If it's all about bones, I do not want to live in a reductionist world where we're going to reduce bone health all the way down to one micronutrient calcium. So I'm, I'm out of this game from that perspective. So immediately for me, I say, this is not the way we get healthy bones. I go from the perspective, we need a synergistic response of potassium, phosphorus, you know, vitamin K, magnesium, all of these things in the, in the context of axial loading, where you are actually physically moving that body to prevent calcium from wanting to leach out of your bones. And then where you get your calcium from probably makes the most sense to get it mostly from plants. And then if you want a little bit of milk, that's healthy, that's quality and you don't have an intolerance, maybe that works out for you. I think that could be reasonable. I think the better play is to get fermented foods, right? We, we can get into that. You know, fermented foods makes a lot more sense to me, right? Cause you're getting probiotics that way. You're doing a lot of stuff to the body that could be very useful. Um, the only other thing I think is also, we could touch on briefly is, you know, the other milks, So goat milk or sheep milk, right? So they have half the amount of casein. So if you are having a hard time digesting casein, it's possible that goat milk or sheep milk might be more beneficial if you choose to drink milk or eat cheese. And so if you have half the amount of casein, that might be reasonable. Now, again, if you're milk protein intolerant, there's zero amount that's good for you. I think all you're doing is immunologically challenging your gut. You're just going to cause more symptoms downstream and put yourself at risk for autoimmunity, which will segue us right into Fasano's article. So any last comments on this before we flip over into Fasano's article? Zach, give me your last take on this article.
2: Yeah, I think summarizing it, you know, this idea of why do we need milk? You know, it's a possible good source of calcium and vitamin D. We know that if we're going to make the argument that, this is good for our bone health, this actually may not reduce the risk of fractures. And this may not actually be the most important um, nutrient when it comes to bone health. Um, And are there better sources to get this um, nutrition in your diet uh, in a better way that's not going to have all these potential risks, whether it's, um, you know, cancer risk, whether it's excess calorie risk, whether it's this milk protein intolerance, lactose intolerance, allergy risk, um, and is it necessary at the end of the day? I think that's a question that, um, you know, you have to ask yourself, you know, is this necessary? And then on the flip side, um, if you don't fall in any of those categories and you just happen to be someone who enjoys milk, who enjoys dairy products, is there a better version that you can be consuming this? And what does that look like? Um, and is it in a lower quantity, um, than maybe we're used to, or that, um, the, uh, standard American diet is encouraging.
1: Yeah. Andrew. Well said. That's Nothing all else I got. To add. So That's I, I do want to ask
0: you, I do want to ask you guys one more question. I actually made you just made me think of it because both of you have been through our clinic, um, Zach clearly a lot and Andrew for, for a month and change here and there. When you see these cow milk protein intolerant kids, right? And so you guys have seen them describe, you know, Zach, I'm gonna give this one to you first. Describe what you've learned in respect to the two-year-old who's cow milk protein intolerant and mom's back on dairy with the kid. Cause I think this is sort of critical for parents to understand.
2: Um, so just so I'm understanding you correctly. So, um, uh, child who has this milk protein intolerant, and then mom goes back on dairy, um, two years later.
0: No, mom, mom gives the kid dairy. If she's breastfeeding, she's giving it to him that way, or she's actually feeding the kid through her diet. Like IE, she's making food with dairy, giving the kid milk or cheese, something of that nature. So she, cause again, a two-year-old's not choosing what foods they get. Mom's sort of pretty describing what they're going to eat. So, Yeah.
2: Yeah, I think so. One of the um, best things we can do as providers is ask really good questions, especially when we're talking to our patients. Um, and this question that keeps getting brought up, especially at our clinic, but um, amongst providers, um, was, did you have any issues with dairy or milk um, as an infant? Um, and that's kind of a light bulb moment just um why are you asking that? What's the big deal? Um, because when you're seeing children with recurrent ear infections, when you're seeing children with persistent eczema, with persistent allergies, um, with persistent asthma and starting to kind of nitpick and figure out these common denominators, um, it's fascinating to see how many of these children struggled with, um, milk protein intolerance as a kid and how it's manifesting later on in life and what that, um, Turns into and uh, evolves into.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and what we see, the, the logical consequence, and Sam Yannick calls it, uh, for a good friend of mine, immunologist calls it, you know, that when you have this milk protein challenge, you have hollow space disease, right? So you have irritation in hollow spaces. So that's your gut that's your sinus tract, that's your ears, that's your lungs. And so whatever your uh, genetic predisposition is, you're going to show up to us in clinic as either having wheezing, congestion, recurrent ear infections, um, uh, problems with uh, irritation of your gut, so either diarrhea or constipation, GI irritation. And then on top of that, you will see in the atopic is the eczema, but I think it's, it's pretty fascinating how many of these kids I'm finding now purely by looking at the medication list. So I go, before I walk into the room, I always check the problem list and medication list. And when I looked out at the medication list to see 10 antibiotics and the kid's five, I'm like, Oh man, this kid has milk protein. Invariably it's true. I go in, I talk to the mom. I said, Hey, you know, does your kid have to be on a special formula or did you breastfeed have to quit milk? And Oh yeah, yeah, he did. But we started giving them back milk at a year. And lo and behold, you look at when the antibiotics started, it was roughly around that time. So to me, the take-home point for all these parents is to understand: Hey, hollow space disease occurs when you have a food intolerance that is driving inflammation in those areas, and then we see that of as secondary problems. And this kid who's now has tubes in his ears may have avoided all this stuff. We could have picked this up early. So the news to use for parents is to talk to your pediatrician. If you're on your, you know, third antibiotic, say, hey, could this be milk? And if you know your history was milk protein, get milk out of this kid's diet, right? And that's just the. To me, that's the biggest take-home point to this: is get milk out if you think. It is causing inf- illness, 30 day trial. If the kids dramatically better, give them milk back. If they get worse, proof of concept, you don't need blood tests to prove this, right? And so sometimes we will find these kids also when they come in for quote unquote allergic rhinitis all the time, right? And then you test their IgE or skin test them, and it's still cold normal. Like, you go, oh, that's weird. Why does he have allergic rhinitis if he's got no allergies? And it turns out that invariably these kids are food protein intolerant. So yeah, I, I, I think that's, To me, that's the kicker of this whole dairy story is parents have to be aware that dairy probably is neutral to a negative from just a holistic health perspective nutritionally, but it is a net negative big time. If you have sensitivities or allergies or anything in the, I don't, I don't tolerate this thing immunologically. And so people need to pay attention to that. All right. So let's shift gears. Let's go to Dr. Fasano's article. And it's sort of apropos because Fasano being the guru of leaky gut, and and I'm gonna be speaking with him in two weeks, and we're gonna get into this a little bit more, but he sort of figured out the mechanisms behind intestinal permeability or where we see you know, these columnar epithelium in the intestinal lining open up and allow bigger molecules than should be to slip into the conserved immunologic space. So. Zach, I'm gonna I'm gonna start with you on this one. What was Fasano's goal in doing this study?
2: Yeah, I think his for? I think his goal of looking at this study was trying to see um, were there things we could see in patients who developed MISC or multi inflammatory syndrome in children um, that could have alerted us sooner, um, that could have um, tipped us off uh, beforehand. Um, that we could have been looking at before it kind of turned into MISC and turned into um, the complications related to that.
0: Yeah, so that was his goal in in, in doing the study. So Andrew, what did he find in the beginning? So he looked. What yeah. Did, what did he come up with?
1: So just kind of at baseline, we're looking at like what MISC is, and is he noticing these kids who would get COVID, SARS-CoV two. And run through the the standard upper respiratory infection symptoms and all that kind of stuff, and then days to weeks later would come back with these like pretty gnarly fevers, GI symptoms, diarrhea, vomiting, abdominal pain, all this kind of stuff, um, and like heart myocardial dysfunction and all of this stuff. So Explain he's looking myocardial
0: at myocardial dysfunction.
1: So myocardium is just like the word for heart muscle. Right. And so what he would, what we're finding in these kids with, with MISC is that their, their hearts are bigger than they're supposed to be. They're not squeezing as hard as they're supposed to be. And they're just in general, like inflamed and, and just, there's a ton of immune response focused around the heart. Um, and that is a, A topic in and of itself is kind of the cardiac abnormalities that, that COVID finds. But basically, all of those symptoms that we just laid out all boil down to kids with MISCs, their immune systems are just going nuts. Like they are constantly trying to put out a fire. And what was interesting in this, he kind of lays this Fasano and all of the 30 other authors that were on this thing, lay out in the first couple paragraphs here that you see kids with increased uh, monocyte recruitment, cytokine storm, T-cell activation, inflammation, all this. But in most cases, and I'm just quoting straight here, SARS-CoV-2 was undetectable by reverse transcription PCR of the nasopharyngeal swab. And then he goes on, and I quote, leaving the etiology and the timing of this hyperinflammatory response yet to be elucidated. In language that I would understand, basically, they're like, if we have this continued inflammatory response, why are we not picking anything up on the nasal swabs that everyone in the world has been using to determine whether or not someone has COVID? Yeah. And so, to what Zach oh, pointed out, he's looking for. What can we start looking for if not PCR nasal swabs to find out whether or not these kids are going to have MISC?
0: Right. So he's a gastroenterologist by training, a pediatric gastroenterologist. He's, he's at Harvard up there. I think he's at Mass General specifically. But he, Clearly had a bias towards. I think it's in the gut, and the reason he had that bias is one, he's a pediatric gastroenterologist. that's where he always looks. But two, there was data already coming out that adults who were having problems with COVID had more dysbiosis or abnormal gut bugs, so that sort of drove him to say, "Hey, I wonder if this is happening in these kids that we're seeing with MIS." And he specifically looked at 100 kids, which is a really good study, you know, number-wise for a disease that's very rare. I mean, if you compare this to Kawasaki's disease, which is what I grew up seeing, that was the corollary to this disease, right? Kawasaki's was the seven plus days of high fever, super irritable kid, red conjunctivitis, eyes, red tongue, red lips, uh, carditis again, like you're talking about, sometimes they'd even get this rash, uh, and also sometimes they have joint symptoms. So it was a very, very pro-inflammatory syndrome, believed to be viral as well, never elucidated a single virus that would do this. So when MIS came on, everybody was like, wow, this looks a whole lot like Kawasaki's. So I wonder if the mechanisms are similar. And so full circle, he sees 19 kids with MISc, multi-inflammatory syndrome and children 26 with just acute COVID-19. So he had basically two comparator groups, right? The first one was the kids who were really sick. The second was the kids who had demonstrable COVID-19 with acute illness. And the third group was 55 control kids. So he really set this up nicely as we have three groups to look at blood and stool wise to understand what's really going on. So, you know, he couldn't find SARS-2 in the nose. So what that tells me is the virus is either gone or it's no longer where it initially started, right? So we all know that it's an inhaled virus. You pick it up and you inhale it, comes into your nose or mouth and immediately takes up residence in the tissue there and starts to replicate. So by then somehow it either was gone and now you have this post-viral inflammatory response or it migrated somewhere else. So what happened?
2: Um, sure. So I think, as being a, a gastroenterologist, he looked in the gut, and was fascinating to um, find that it ended up, you know, eventually in the gut in a lot of these patients.
0: Yeah, incredible. And and so I think the thing that was so eye opening in this, and this is where it's going to get sort of sort of deep. And I'll take this part because unless one of you guys feels comfortable going through the Zonulin story. I think it was absolutely fascinating that when he looked there, he found SARS-2 replicating in the intestines. So the virus was not gone. The virus existed and it was actually replicating inside the intestines and the mucosal lining. So again, mucosa, just like the nasopharynx, but instead it ended up in the gut. And so Fasano's early work, when he really bust onto the scene of prominence in gastroenterology was, he figured out that there's a protein called zonulin that actually will break through the tight junctions. So if you imagine the columnar epithelium of the intestine is single cell layer thick. These are column—they call them columnar because they're longer—and on top they have this villus at the villus structure that looks like you know like um, little sea kelp on the bottom of the ocean waving by, and they have all these functions, but they're held together by by zonulin occludins, zonula occludins, and also by these that look like myosin chains. And he figured out in his work with cholera that the cholera toxin would cause zonulin to be released from the cell and it would break these tight junctions open by a receptor. So by breaking these tight junctions open, there's now no longer this tight layer to prevent molecules from falling down between the columnar epithelium. And so these molecules would fall through. And this is key to the MIS story because what was happening is he found that these these SARS-2 viral structures were replicating in the system. They were elaborating zonulin, which then zonulin was causing leaky gut or opening of this this paracellular membrane. And then things could fall through. And what he found was in the serum, he found signs of spike protein in your blood. He found signs of lipopolysaccharide, which is bacterial breakdown products. And he found another marker of intraluminal intestinal byproduct in the bloodstream. So he basically proved leaky gut was going on. Well, then he went a little bit farther to look and see, well, okay, did that cause the systemic effects that we're seeing? And, and, and clearly the answer was yes, because these kids had upregulation regulation and all the major cytokines, which for those who don't know, that's a fancy word for chemical signal messengers in the immune system where they send out signals to tell certain cells to be recruited, in this case, monocytes, to come in and fight this fire, fight this infection. And so Fasano, you know, sat there and proved that. So that I thought was the most fascinating part of this whole thing was that he sat there and said, okay, dysbiosis or abnormal gut microbiome is maybe the piece of the pie. So he went from there and took it another step further. He had a a study of a one child, a 17 month old, Mm. right? what happened with that 17 month Cause I think this is also demonstrative and I can't wait to ask him where this drug is in the process.
1: Yeah. So that was super interesting. So given what we just talked about, how, like, if you've got increased zonulin, you have leakier gut, right? It basically zonulin just like opens up all of the bricks that lie in your intestine and let everything go out. Well, if you can stop zonulin, like ideologically or conceptually that seems like a good place to start so I and correct me if I'm wrong if you know more about this but he dr. fasano and and compatriots start looking for a drug that would do just that um, and they found uh, larazaztide and I'm absolutely certain I'm mispronouncing that but basically it's a uh, it's a zonulin antagonist it's a medicine that targets zonulin and it's actually per the at the time of publication, I think this was in phase three trials for celiac disease. So again, another hollow space issue that we're dealing with with the GI tract celiac disease and inability to not inability to correctly break down glucose. No gluten, gluten, gluten. Gluten. So I'm in celiac. They probably also have increased onulin. So someone has created this medication and he Fasano, had a patient toddler, complex, complex medical history. Um, but frequent episodes of hospitalization for severe COVID complicated by cardiac resuscitation, respiratory failure, all this stuff. He was like, let me give this kid some azotide and see what happens. And lo and behold, he started to improve clinically. Um, Fevers went down, his spike antigen level. So, basically, what he was measuring for in the blood to check whether or not COVID was continually getting pumped into the system, those levels started going down. Um, and he had an improvement. And this is, I'm quoting from him improvement in cytokine, inflammatory mediator levels, virus induced interferon release, less immune cell activation. Basically, all of the markers that they were looking at with MISC started going down when they gave this zonulin antagonist.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Incredible, incredible, incredible. And so, you know, how, how do we unpack, you know, what he, what he really learned um, in, in all of this stuff. Right. So, you know, he sat there and he came up with this really interesting paradigm, chased it down, found out that, you know, this is, proof of concept, then gave a drug to antagonize what he believed to be proof of concept. Child got better. And so now we're sitting here in a world where COVID affects only certain kids with MISC. We're not quite sure yet why. There was another study by Ed Barons who looked at it. There's an abnormality in a repressor protein for CXCL9 another one of these cytokine chemokines. But the big play for me is you have to then somehow in a child end up with you know, COVID replicating in your gut, right? And, and, and clear, this is not happening to a lot of these kids because he's measured this control group of sick kids, didn't happen to them. And the control group who didn't have COVID didn't happen to them. So there's some predisposition for this.
1: It would seem like the predisposition is gut dysbiosis.
0: Yeah, that's what I think it is too, but I can't wait to ask him. Clearly in the adult world, it uh-huh. seems dysbiosis is a major player. The problem with that is there's a lot of dysbiosis out there, but only a little bit of MISC. So I think it's necessary, but not sufficient for mm-hmm. disease propagation, right? And so, hmm, interesting stuff. And and where is it gonna go? That that I think is a bigger piece coming forward.
2: Yeah, so I think unpacking this article, I think we can clearly see that um, this disease, MISC, is uh impacting and affecting individuals um, that are gonna have comorbidities, putting them at a higher risk for baseline inflammation. Um, we know that there is a genetic factor or genetic predisposition um, in some individuals um, that are suppressing their immune system and inflammatory response to it. Um, and putting that together, um, what can we control and what can't we control? Uh, if we're put at a genetic predisposition, there's not a whole lot we have in our control that um, we can help ourselves for that. But if there is this idea that we have dysbiosis or we have this lack of um, gut microbes um, and a variety of gut microbes um, that are putting us at a higher risk for MIS-C, what can be done about that? And what can we do um, to change that outcome?
0: Yeah. So it gets back to what we've always talked about, right? Zach, it's, you know, Andrew, it's, you know, every time we sit down and have conversations, it's lifestyle, right? You cannot change your antecedent risk factors of genetics if those genes are working against you, but you certainly can make decisions that reduce your risk of a bad outcome. And I think Fasano clearly, clearly showed us that that what we have here is the ability to alter the phenotype or alter the outcome in these kids if we know what the antecedent risk factors are, are. And I think Fasano showed us what those antecedent risk factors are, as you stated clearly, Zach, you know, the biggest problem with all this stuff is we're making bad decisions for ourselves, you know, it, it, with respects to choice of food, antibiotic exposure, acid exposure, you know, all kinds of things that lead to what you aptly stated, Zach, which is dysbiosis, right? So this abnormal gut microbiome where we have poor biodiversity, sort of a rainforest that's been culled and only has like one tree instead of a hundred trees per square meter. And then the types of bugs, instead of having banana trees and fruit trees and rubber trees and, and palm trees, we just have banana trees, right? that is a recipe for disaster. And, and this has been clearly shown in study after study after study in adults and children, especially with COVID. COVID shed a huge spotlight on this. So, you know, what can we do now to wrap wrap sort of a nice bow around Fasano's work? He clearly proved nicely, you know, mechanistically how this MIS is happening. Um, Ed Barron's work showed that cxcl 9 is partly a piece. This I think there's probably more things going on. But if you guys were to to say, hey, you know, what do we tell parents, right? So the news to use now, so the whole point of this is news to use, right? So other med students, other nurse practitioners, anyone else listening to this journal club and you wanted to walk away and say, all right guys, here's the news to use, right? You don't need to know the hard science because that's our job to, to spend time diving into these journal articles. But what do we tell folks? Like how do you then counsel your patient without going through zonulin because they could care less about zonulin, right? But how do we counsel our patients to prevent this? Is it just mask <laughs> or is it, you know, socially distanced till the dawn of time?
1: I'd say a lot of this, uh, some of the recommendations here are going to sound cliche, but I would hope that after talking about the science behind this, we understand that it, it truly is these, these lifestyle changes. So number one, you know, no matter what, has gone on in the past. And I think this is a big thing. There's no guilt here. There's no shaming anybody for any decisions made, you know, in your past because we can't change that. Okay. So no matter what happened, try to clean up your kid's diet by switching to something that's anti-inflammatory. And there's a ton of information about those types of diets. Whole 30 is one of them, or, uh, at least a no processed, um, whole food, predominantly fruit, vegetable diet. The highly processed modern diet is probably the most important trigger of dysbiosis and intestinal um, permeability here, like that, the leaky gut that we were talking about. Um, And then if you do plan to have a child soon, breastfeeding your infant from birth and and practicing healthy weight gain during pregnancy sets the stage for a healthy microbiome. Um, The pre-pregnant time is definitely a perfect time to practice um, anti-inflammatory diets.
2: And it's not only based on, you know, nutrition, whether what we are currently eating or what um, a mom who is breastfeeding is eating, but there's other factors. There's sleep. um, And for most kids specifically, that's going to be anywhere from eight to 10 hours a night. Um, And the reason being is that's going to help reduce sleep deprivation. That's um, um, sleep deprivation can deprive our immune activation. Um, You can focus on practicing chemical and toxin avoidance by avoiding consumption of unnecessary drugs unnecessary ant-, ant acids, antibiotics and um, non-steroidal medicines that aren't needed um, that uh, as we learned, will negatively impact your um, gut intestinal microflora, um, promoting this dysbiosis, so this lack of um, bacteria in your gut. Um, and then as you know as cliche as it sounds, um, focusing on mental health and stress um reduction and what that could look like, whether that's prayer, whether that's meditation, whether that's taking some me time, whether that's um getting creative with the arts and crafts, um, whether that's talking to someone, whether it's getting to the point, I think if anything, what COVID has taught us um, is mental health. Um, we need to put our mental health as a top priority. And counseling can be one of those um, tools we can use to certainly address that. Um, and then definitely one of my favorites, it's getting out and moving. Um, we all have our, um, favorite things we like to do. Um, but the best form of exercise is going to be a form of movement and typically the one that you enjoy, um, and the impact that that's going to have on your, um, immune system, um, the impact that's going to have on your, um, bacteria overgrowth in your gut and the reduction it can cause.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, those are fantastic points guys. And I think, you know, from a lifestyle medicine perspective or what we call holistic perspective, those are the things you can alter, right? We can make decisions and we're gonna get into some deeper dives in the future on, you know, refined carbohydrates and fructose and what all that does to ravage the immune system. But I think the key here is to have a viral surveillance mechanism and a viral killing capacity that is tip top shape. So if SARS-2 or the next variant or the next stupid bug gets in our body that wants to cause us harm, we are immunologically solvent to tackle it. and. And I think your points are clear, right? So if we go and work against this dysbiotic American diet program where the foods that we're being con- forced to consume are driving dysbiosis, we're going to have more and more problems as time goes on. You know, STARS 2 MISC is rare, right? 316 persons per million, right? So that's, you know, 3.16 kids per 10,000. This is not a common disease, but if that's your kid, that's not good, right? So we wanna take this pretty darn seriously. And, you know, just since we can touch on it briefly, age of predilection is roughly around eight years of age, which is a little bit older than Kawasaki's, which usually was the one two-year-old age range. So there's something different there, something about this middle, you know, first decade of life that's driving disease more. And, and so, but, you know, news to use has to be what you guys just stated, you know, cause that's modifiable. You know, we can't change. If you have a CXC on gene defect, we can't change, you know, if you're predisposed to leaky gut because of a primary family relative, with celiac disease, those are things we can't alter. But boy, man, we can alter the other pieces. And again, cow milk protein intolerance let's tie the two together. If your kid has cow milk protein intolerance, don't give them milk. I mean, it's just, let's just make it simple. Right. I, you know, I, I think, that's the bottom line. So I, I appreciate you guys doing the heavy lifting learning these articles and putting this information out there. Cause I, you know, I think for anyone who's listening to this, that's the key is breaking down the research that the guys that are brilliant, way smarter than I am and way smarter than you two are capable of giving us the data that we can use it and provide it to everybody else. Who's not medical based, right? That's the problem is, you know, if, if, if a mom reads Fasano's article, it's like gobbledygook, but you guys did a great job of breaking that down to bring it down to the level where, you know, other med students can understand it. And there's practitioners, you know, PAs, whoever else wants to listen to this, but more importantly, I think parents, if they do listen to this as well, there's going to be some gleanable information from it. So I appreciate that hard, hard work you guys did, you know, first time doing a journal club. I think this was pretty awesome. Any last minute thoughts from either of you, Zach, you can go first. What do you, what do you think about this? Pretty fun. Yeah.
2: I think it's great to kind of talk about, um, the research and talk about um, journals and how it applies to current situations, whether that may be COVID, whether that may be um, dairy, milk protein intolerance, and then more importantly, what you can do, how you can um, interpret this and um, how you can kind of apply it to your life. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Kudos. Yeah. Andrew.
1: Totally. I love uh, getting to talk through stuff because you read it and it uh, definitely is gobbledygook. Uh, full disclosure: <laughs> I read these like four times, and then finally, maybe just kind of understood it. So, talking it out's nice, and uh, it's honestly really fun breaking it down and and getting to the what do we do with this side of things. Yeah.
0: yeah, and I think for me, every time we do one of these in the future, we need to keep bringing it back to the ancestral knowledge of what we're supposed to be doing. You know, mm. I think both of these articles very clearly have data from the past and time that we can use to tell us what we should be doing today. And, you know, even if it's talking about how animals should be raised or how humans should be consuming food or acting minimally stressed or whatever, every article I think we do from now on is going to come back to those common main themes of, of human dysfunction driven by human lifestyle choices. So to that knowledge, guys, appreciate you very much on this uh, Tuesday night or yeah. And so for what it's worth fabulous first journal club, thank you very much. Andrew Brackens and Zach strong. Well, there you have it, folks, the first Journal Club in the books. Uh, It was enjoyable. I hope you enjoyed it, and I hope the information is usable. And we're going to continue to look at different topics over the course of the year that are of interest to us, the Journal Club invitees and people, as well as you, the listener. So hope you have a great day. Remember to hug those kids. Now for the disclaimer. The information provided in this podcast is for educational and informational purposes only. It is not a substitute for advice and treatment provided by your physician or other health care professional and is not to be used to diagnose or treat a health issue. This podcast does not constitute the development of any provider-patient relationship. Have a great day.